0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 293 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Jerome Hardaway. Hey, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and we have a special guest this week, and that's Nell Shamrell Harrington.
1: Hello. Greetings from cold and soggy Seattle.
0: Soggy, huh?
1: Yep. Yep. It's been uh, not not snowing. It's not, it's not quite cold enough to snow, but uh, there's been a drizzle and constant moisture in the air.
0: Cool. Um... It snowed here a couple times, but it's all melted off. So I, think, I don't know if we're in for a white Christmas or not. I think it's supposed to snow on Christmas Eve. So
1: nice.
2: Yeah, My we're just wife, getting defrost. That's about it.
0: Yeah. My wife is panicked about her dad driving up because he has to drive through a pretty nasty canyon. So. Hey. Yeah, that's always fun. Um, I also want to just throw in a quick announcement. Uh, early bird tickets ended for DevOps Remote Comp, but since this episode is kind of right up that alley. Um, I thought I would just share. You can still get tickets. The conference is January 18th and 19th, and uh, I just selected all the speakers, and we're getting them up on the website right now. All right, well, let's jump in and talk about this. So packaging Ruby. I think this is actually uh, a new topic for the show. Sometimes we revisit stuff because things change, but I don't think we've really talked about this, so I'm kind of interested to see where we go with it. Um, When you talk about... Ruby packaging, what exactly are you thinking about now?
1: Sure. What I'm thinking about mainly is, so before I worked at Chef, I worked on applications where we would have it hosted on our own servers and our own data center or whatever cloud provider we were using, and people would go to our website and use our product there. When I came to Chef, I started making software that we would make for people to run on their own hardware. Uh, whether that's cloud-based hardware whether that's on-premises hardware and I s- realized that I needed to learn how to package it together so when I say packaging uh, I mean making an artifact of some sort that someone can take and run on their own workstation or run on their own hardware so in Ruby uh, the the most classic example we have, I think, is Ruby Gems, which are little self contained programs that anyone with Ruby or Ruby Gems can install and run software through there.
0: Yeah, I think we're all familiar with Ruby Gems and the model there. Yep. Yeah. And we just had an episode about building a gem. And so if you're wondering about the other end and how you get that artifact or the gem, then go check out that episode.
1: Absolutely. And what I also find interesting is, uh, well, this is going to get nerdy, but I recently got back into World of Warcraft and I remembered how even just you know five, six years ago, I used to line up at midnight when it was time for a new expansion to buy a, a physical software package uh, with the new game expansion on it. But now I mainly download them. And uh, it, that brings us into the topic of package managers. You know, how do you not only how do you create packages but how do you download them how do you verify they're from who says who it says they're from how do you verify that you're secure they're secure that's a big one so there's lots of uh, lots of interesting things to, to sink our teeth into
0: yeah definitely um, one thing that kind of that, that you said that kind of got me going is that um, I remember my last full-time job I worked for uh, public engines which was a company that did crimereports.com. I actually worked there with David Brady ah cool uh, anyway we we had government data so we had all these restrictions on how we could actually access the data and deploy our applications and so whenever we had to add a new gem to the application we would actually take it over to the uh the it guys sometimes actually take it over on a thumb drive and they would package it up as an rpm and deploy it to the server. And I always thought that was interesting because, you know, it's just like, why can't we just put Ruby gems on there and just gem install or bundle install and just get it that way? But yeah, there are actually reasons for packaging up a full app or packaging up even part of an app or a, a library or something else uh, just to get it onto a server or some other environment.
1: Right. At Chef, uh, we have several customers who work in air-gapped environments. Uh, That means the hardware they have has no outside internet connection uh, because they're running our software on things like uh, nuclear power reactors and uh, defense systems. So we need to be able to put together a package with everything they need to run our software uh, in a way that they can install it on an air-gapped environment.
2: Oh, yes. I've seen uh, that process in real life. It's, uh, it's pretty, it sucks on every level. So I definitely definitely understand the importance of that.
0: I almost expected you to say that you loved it, Jerome, and I was going to be like, why? <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, I mean, I understand uh, the security of being in every uh environment, especially in reference to what she's saying. With, you know, nuke bases, and like last year when we all got in trouble for uh, some stuff, accidentally ended up in the, on the wrong plane in the wrong country. Uh, but I like it. Still, it's a horrible process going through that physical, physically implementing packages and things of that in a, in a system that's not connected to the web or the cloud. Everything's internal.
0: Yeah, it's especially fun when you have a Ruby library that accesses a C library that has to be compiled on the machine. Because you yep. have like three different levels of this, right? Because you have to make sure that it's all over there. And sometimes it's convenient to get that all in one package, and sometimes it really isn't.
1: That is very true.
2: Uh, I'm, I've just, I'm just started um, th- This month is my sabbatical month from Ruby, and I've been focusing on C. And as a person that started in JavaScript and Ruby and never touched C, it has been the most painful month of my life. So don't let's not mention C for the rest (laughs) of this.
0: The language. (laughs) Sorry, Matt. So how many different package packaging systems are there out there?
1: Uh, there are a lot. I mean, the ones I probably use the most are the classic Linux ones, uh, Debian, using that for Ubuntu systems, or RPM slash YUM, using that for Red Hat systems. But, I mean, it's not only operating systems. On Mac, we have Homebrew, Mac ports, Windows, we have Chocolatey, but even editors, I've noticed, now have uh, package management systems. Like uh, I use Vim personally, and there's Vundle, which is similar to Bundle, uh, that I can use to handle all the different plugins I use within my Vim editor.
0: Yeah, Emacs has the same thing. I don't know what it's called, but yeah, I uh, Command-X and then Package dash list pack dash packages, and then you pick the ones you want.
1: Exactly.
2: That's the exact same thing, but they just call it uh Atom. Just Atom install whatever packages. So
0: yeah, Atom has um. I mean, if you're if you're getting into those, I mean, Visual Studio Code has them. Sublime Text has them. Mm-hmm. Um, on Linux, you forgot my favorite Yast. Don't make me ever use Yast. Oh. <laughs> um, that's on the. I forget the distribution, but yeah, the one that used to be Novell. Anyway, so yeah, so the, it's, it, there's a lot of them out there.
1: They are, and it kind of highlights how I think uh, you know when we're first learning software, and I first learned Ruby or any language, I started you know off by writing everything within one program or writing everything in, within a package that I controlled. But I think. Going over all these package managers, it shows how much software, whether it's Ruby or beyond, uh, how much we tend to need to bring in things that other people have written.
0: Let's take a break from this episode and really quickly talk about finding a job. You know, searching for a job can feel stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through an interview process just to find out that the very end that the salary offer or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Well, there's a solution. Hired.com is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities. They make the job search faster, focused, and stress-free instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best. Hired puts you in control of how and when you connect with compelling opportunities. And after completing one simple application, top employers apply to you. And the best part is, is that you get money. That's right. They pay you if you get a job through them. Listeners to this show can earn double their normal hiring bonus by signing up with the show's link. That's right. You get $2,000 instead of $1,000. So go sign up at hire.com slash podcast. One thing that i'm wondering about because we talked about all these different systems you know chocolatey on windows and homebrew mac ports on the mac and then you've got the the debian and rpm packages on linux um which are definitely kind of the most common places where we're going to be installing things for our programs to be able to consume but even then i mean there are some differences between mac and linux and there are market differences differences between windows and Mac, or, or windows and linux and so if I don't have the right DLL installed, it won't work on windows, but it may work on Mac because it just kind of ships with whatever it was that I needed. And so exactly. Then, oh man. Right.
1: Right. We live in a, uh, a multi, for better or worse, a multi-operating multi system world and multi-platform world. And uh, one of the challenges I've found is creating packages for operating systems that are different than the workstation that I'm working on. And the main way I, I do that, whether it's a Ruby program or Rails application or something else, is I'll often create a virtual machine with the operating system that I want to create a package for and compile it on that virtual machine and then release it on some sort of artifact repository but uh, even then it's still very challenging to make packages that will run both on Unix based systems like Linux and uh, Mac and on Windows.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting uh, to hearken over to the JavaScript world for a minute um, Electron can run yeah. on any of those operating systems, The uh, at least the the computer laptop desktop uh, operating systems and yeah you wind up building like three different ways it's very similar with uh, native script or react native uh, for mobile but the thing that's really interesting is is that for a long time and I don't know if they've fixed all of the issues some of these were kind of hand-wavy it was like yeah it works on Windows but you know the, the process wasn't fully baked And you see that a lot of times with people working in environments that aren't the same as their native system, like you pointed out.
1: Right. I used to be a TA for a Ruby class at the University of Washington, and one of the many, you know, Many things that were frustrating is we had many students who had a Windows-based laptop. Students brought their own laptop, and we had to do so much vetting of the gems that we recommended for projects to make sure that they would work for someone in a Windows environment because it wasn't quite simple enough i mean we thought about you know giving everyone a virtual machine so everyone would be using the same environment but then not everyone had the same background in linux and uh it was it it was definitely challenging i mean the rails installer for windows has come a long way since then and is becoming i think better to use uh, bit by bit but uh yeah, it, it is challenging and it's something we need to keep in mind, I think, as engineers is that people have these different environments and they all need to run the same software uh, much of the time.
0: So going into that for a minute, do we have the responsibility? Say I write a, a library in Ruby and I'm thinking, OK, you know, I'll, I'll ship it off using RubyGems. Do I have the responsibility to make sure that it works on the other environments or as long as it works for me, am I... Am I fine just accepting open source contributions from people who want to use it on those other systems?
1: That is a good question. And I, th- yeah, that is that is a good question and definitely gets into open source, source ethics and governance. I would say it depends on the scope of the gem that it is you're putting together. Uh, I mean, if it's a major one that we think is going to be used you know, across the Ruby ecosystem, I would say, yes, you do have the responsibility to at least, I'd say you have the responsibility to define in your readme or elsewhere exactly what operating systems it works on and exactly what, what ones a user should be using to use it. And then I think you can get into accepting pull requests if someone wants to use it on a different environment. I was
2: uh, just about to say that um, to piggyback to what Chuck just said. I think it'd be better to like have the opportunity to have the open source community actually press True. on. One of my questions I also going to ask you is: Do you see Ruby packaging and the Ruby gem community becoming or getting back into like the glory of like the early days from like two thousand seven, two thousand ten, where we were just as uh, exciting and fun as the JavaScript and npm uh, community? is one of the things that I'm seeing in the industry uh, is that we are losing some of the more enthusiastic, some of the enthusiastic bright-eyed beginners from Ruby to JavaScript just because that level of energy. And maybe focusing on more open source um, when it comes to Ruby packaging might actually help ignite some of the fire in uh, the Ruby community again.
1: That's a very good point. And I think... Yeah, thinking back to when I was a newer developer, newer developers who I've mentored, there's there's no greater thrill, I think, than opening a pull request to an open source project and having it merged in. I mean, it just it makes your work all of a sudden seem real.
2: Yeah, makes you feel like you're doing fine.
0: So I'm going to push us along to kind of the next topic, and this is something that you mentioned, Nell. And yeah, you started talking about checksums, and I'm like, oh, I never do this. Mm. Right. You know, how do I know that the package is coming from the person I think it's coming from? Or in other words, how do I know that it's it's safe to put on my machine?
1: Right. With Ruby RubyGems, you can sign them, which means I sign it with my public uh, SSH key or PGP or whatever it is that you're using. And then I distribute that public key somehow to a person who's going to be using my gem and they can verify that the key that was used to sign the gem is the same as the key they got from me. Uh, the problem is not a lot of people do that. And, um, and it's understandable. I mean, it is a highly manual process. Um, I work on supermarket at Chef, which is that's our product where people can share Chef cookbooks or Chef tools and they share them as tarballs, as artifacts. And we've had many people tell us, you know, what, what's the liability? If someone uploads malicious code, what if I download that and use it? And the same can be said for RubyGems. What if someone uploads malicious code and I download and use it? So right now what I tell people is anytime you're pulling in external code into your own Code and this is easier said than done. I feel you have a responsibility to take a look at it and see, make sure that it's not going to do, you know, sudo rm rf tilde <laughs> and uh, and uh, brick your machine.
0: Yeah, that was always the joke when I worked in ops was, yeah, I'll just make a package that does effectively that sudo rm rf uh, slash. And away everything goes.
1: Right. So the way to the the best solution we have right now and it, it's an imperfect solution is signing it and then verifying the checksum or verif- verifying the key. Uh, but there are definitely weaknesses in that system. So I'm I'm really interested to see where that goes uh, from here.
0: I'm curious what is the weakness. I mean, I know that some uh, checksums or certain hashes mm-hmm. aren't 100% secure, but if you use a secure hashing algorithm then aren't you pretty much safe?
1: Uh, you, you could be. Uh, yeah, the 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 weakness I would say is in distributing your public key. You know, how do I? I, I mean, I can personally give it to a developer, but if a developer is going to be you know browsing Ruby gems and takes uh, down my gem, I mean, I suppose I could give them a link to my website or something where I would have my public key up and they could uh, verify it that way. But I I guess what I see is the challenge is that key distribution part. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Well, and even then, even if you have the key on your website, it's only down to the security of your website, so...
1: Exactly, yep.
0: WordPress and hasn't been updated in a while and somebody really wants to get to those people.
1: Yep. There was a great presentation at Ancient City Ruby 2013 by Ben Smith called Hacking with Gems. And what he did was he he demonstrated the various ways uh, someone could put malicious code into a gem and even, I think, had some videos set up with a virtual machines showing what they do. However, it wasn't as much the, the technical weaknesses that he highlighted, though he did certainly show them, what he had done, and he did this at other Ruby conferences that year too, was he distributed these cards that said, ancient city Ruby, gem, official gem, go to this uh, gem and download it. Uh, and then during his presentation, he put up a uh, a slide that had the names, the GitHub names of everyone who had down, or Ruby gems names of everyone who had downloaded them and highlighted how that kind of social engineering of getting people to download a package uh, could also be used to uh, crack security or to introduce a security hole.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: Right, right. He got a round of applause, though. I think in the video they removed <laughs> that slide. <laughs> yes. I mean, I go back and forth. I was like, I don't know, I don't know about public shaming, but it, but it was very effective uh, on stage at the conference itself.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So, what do you do? Do you look at the code then, or I mean, is there any other <laughs> way around it? I'm lazy. I don't want to look at the code.
1: I know, and that's the hard. And the answer is there's no easy way right now. Uh, and I'd I'd love to see there be an easier way in the future, but right now it's, you know, how much do you trust the source where you got the key? And, you, and you, I, you know, you should also consider the source where you're getting the software. I mean, theoretically, someone could upload malicious code to, say, the official Ubuntu uh, repositories. However, those, I believe, are pretty well vetted. So I'm usually, I feel... Safer, if not 100% safe, getting something from an official source like that rather than downloading it off of downloads.com or uh, something to that effect.
0: Gotcha. So, what's the process that you go through then to create a package? Let's say you need uh, an RPM or a Debian package. Um, I I can't imagine it's that hard, but what what all's involved?
1: Right. Well, uh, what's nice is there's a lot of uh, tools available to help you create them. Like, let's say I want to create a Debian package. What I would do is, if I'm doing it manually, is I would create an Ubuntu VM, then install some of their built-in tools like Build Essential. And I would use those to take, let's say, a shell script and turn that into an executable package. And what those tools will do is they'll give me a Debian directory and then some files to edit to define exactly what I want that package to do and how I want it
0: to be installed. That makes sense. Are most packaging systems similar? I know that RubyGems kind of has that with the gem spec.
1: RubyGems does. RPM does. I'm not as familiar with homebrew and chocolatey but i believe they're similar a cool thing uh that came out of i keep mentioning my employer but that came out of chef recently is our product called habitat and what's cool about habitat is the vision for it and this is still being developed but the vision for it is to be able to take a program and use Habitat to create a package that can run on any operating system. So you can say, I want a package that's going to run on Debian, it would create, a, or an Ubuntu operating system, it would create a Deb package for you. I want to run on Red Hat Linux, it would create a yum package for you. Uh, and eventually, this functionality isn't there yet, but we'd like to be able to say, all right, I've created this package on a, this program on a Linux workstation. I want this to be able to run on Windows. And... What the promise of Habitat is that it'll have that functionality built in so you can create software anywhere, then define where you want that software to run, and it'll automatically create that package for you. Right now, it works for Linux flavors. Uh, The Windows functionality is still coming, but I think that kind of platform agnosticism is where we're going to see a shift in packaging in the coming years.
0: I think that would be pretty amazing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yep. And what's also cool about Habitat is what I I think is the, the game changer in it is it includes all the a shell script which defines how you want to install that package whether it's on a container whether it's on a vm whether it's on bare metal and if you install that package in multiple places you can set it up so that they self-organize so let's say we've got four containers one's the leader we've got three followers say we have MySQL or something like that if one of them goes down it will automatically reorganize itself into that leader follower pattern uh, which is pretty neat. So I think it's it's adding some intelligence being packaged in with packages along with the software.
0: So one other thing that I'm wondering about here, because mm-hmm. I, I like to run my code through uh, continuous integration and right. you know just check up on stuff. And one of the things that uh, I've seen done with Ruby gems and also with like iOS libraries and things like that is that they actually package them up and deliver them after they're done. Um, is Right way do that through some of these systems so that it essentially puts a .deb or a .rpm or something else out there where people can get at it.
1: Uh, I use Jenkins, so I have that set up as my continuous delivery system, and what that will do is it'll create an RPM, it'll create a .deb. And it will automatically put those on an Artifactory repository. And then they're available for people to download from there. And I'd say that is that is the the dream. Um, this is the first time I've I've had that workflow set up, but that's that's the dream of continuous delivery, you know, hitting one button, having it run all the tests, and then package the software together and deliver it to some sort of repository uh, where people can download it and use it.
0: Would you recommend that people put those um, finished artifact files like up on GitHub so people could just download them and manually install them? Or are you better off putting them into a repository?
1: Uh, I'd say it's it's easier... If you want to do it manually, putting it up on GitHub is fine. I'd say if you want to make it so people can... You know, automatically download the latest version of it, or download the edge versions of it. I will put that up on a, in an in artifact repository somewhere.
0: Now, one other question that I have for you, and this is kind of a personal preference thing, I get, I guess, is um, like I, I hate some of the package conventions that are out there. Mm-hmm. So, like on, I'm trying to remember which one's which, but like on Debian, I think it's dash dev, and on red hat is dash devil and right some of these others like it's different everywhere so should you follow the convention everywhere or should you follow the convention for whatever system you're putting it in so if i'm putting it into red hat then i follow their convention if i'm putting it into ubuntu i follow their convention and name it something a little different every time
1: that that's a good question my my personal preference would be go with the convention. If there is a convention, uh, go with the convention of whatever, uh, whatever system you're doing it. Like I know with uh, RubyGems, we have some naming conventions such as using underscores for multiple words, using dashes for extensions, uh, not using uppercase letters. So I, I figure, you know, it's kind of like if I'm coming to, to a system, say to Red Hat or to Ubuntu, it's kind of like coming into someone's house and for me personally, I feel like I should follow the conventions of that house and uh, g- follow their conventions for uh, extensions or for naming uh, rather than trying to bring my own to them. So, so I'd say at, at at this point that that would that would be my, my opinion.
0: It's like taking off your shoes if that's what they do when you come in.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yep.
0: And then as far as naming the packages, I mean, some people like to have clever names for their Ruby gems. And so, like, you you would never know what Nokogiri does or anything. Right. And, and and then other people, they just name it what it does, right? It's yet another something or other. Um, do, do you think that one it really matters more than the other? I know once they get adoption, everybody kind of knows what it is, but until then...
1: Right. I'd say, for me, again, this is personal preference, I prefer it indicating what it does. I mean, there's lots of cute names out there. I mean, you can do maybe in a vm to gem install beer and gem install bacon and see uh it's kind of a game seeing what uh what gems there are with those names but i know as a developer i kind of prefer seeing a gem name or seeing a package name and having an idea of what it does i mean it doesn't need to be an extensive description in fact in most uh packaging systems there's a a uh, file where you put in the description of exactly what it does, but I, I personally like having just a little, little bit of indication. You know what? What am I getting here? What are your thoughts? What, what's the intent?
0: Hey, do you need a sanity check on your code? Make sure all the tests are passing. Make sure all the static assets compile. You know all the normal things that you need to do to make sure that your application is ready for production. Then you need continuous integration, and I recommend Snap CI. SnapCI is a product put together by our friends at ThoughtWorks, and it works great to pull all of your information together about your application, make sure it's ready for production, let your team know if it fails, and overall, just make your life easier. So go check them out at SnapCI.com. I'm curious, Jerome, what do you think about that as far as naming gems or libraries?
2: Oh Well, for that, I was actually taking notes on everything she was saying so I can bring back to my troops. Uh, But when it comes to naming, we... Follow the idea of making it as simple as possible in one practice. Uh, doing only one way of naming it. Naming it, uh, Whatever Ruby says is the best way to do it, which is usually using an underscores and that nature. And making it something easy to recognize for, I guess, your people or for people that are looking for your package. That's how we do it.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, sometimes you have to come up with something a little bit different because the name's already taken. But yes. Even then, <laughs> this I mean, is very true. You know, naming it—you know—if it's an XML library, naming it the, something that has XML in the name, even if it's not XML. Uh,
2: okay. How about this? Let's talk about horrible um, experience of <laughs> sounds uh, good to me. Okay. Uh, there's a Ruby package out there called Comfortable Mexican Sofa. Uh, that when I first ran into it, I was like, well, this looks a little." Uh, Sketchy, I don't want to be the guy that pulls something in and the next developer season thinks I'm like a jerk or something because I'm I'm the jerk of the year or something. But they called it that because I'm assuming that there is another gem out there that's already taken CMS or a customer management system. Oh, Really one of the most popular CMS gems out there. But the name is just horrible as in i was explaining the product to the uh, one of the owners on the buyers who was mexican canadian and when i when i was talking about the you know use how the process of using of building the product out and i said the gym's name he was like what do you mean what are you talking about confirmation the sofa he was shocked he was like whoa pause sir I am only talking about this gem. See, it's right there. I'm not being a uh, jackass. I promise. And I was like, "This is where naming. This is why naming is so important." Because just one, he was a Canadian business owner who was buying this uh, app from our company, and he saw this gem. He thought that we were being like that someone in the app or in the product line was being a jerk during the design and. Creation of it, and I was like, "No, that's not the case at all." And then I also learned my next important lesson is never get too technical with the uh, person who's buying the app if they don't have a technical background, because it's just right. easier for them not to know everything. Uh, but that's a great example of like, "Oh, when naming goes wrong on packages and gems."
0: Well, and there nice. were others that um, have been in poor taste. I think the raciest one that I will actually, because some of them I don't even feel comfortable saying on the podcast, Um, but I think the raciest one that I saw that I I will repeat on the podcast, and you can immediately tell why you wouldn't want to name your gem this, was called Textical. Yeah. You know, that's just a poor taste, so.
2: Oh, man. sounds like a gem created by a marine. Those are the only people that have that sick of a sense of humor to go that far.
0: Yeah, but there are all kinds of people, and people. it's going to bother people. So, you know, it, it was a text-wrangling uh, gem, I think, but yeah. So it kind of said what it did, but it was not in good taste.
1: Right. I, I saw a tweet years ago that said, when you're naming a package or naming a library or something, uh, run it through Urban Dictionary first, uh, just to make oh, sure it doesn't plan. have uh, some meaning that you you, you didn't intend. <sighs>
2: That is a good um, advice. I'm going to write that down.
1: Right. So I feel uh, we can can almost move from naming to versioning, which is another massively important part of uh, packaging, I think. Mm -hmm. And I tend to go the semantic versioning just because it seems... Yeah, I mean, well, there's that XKCD comic that says, you know, there's 14 competing standards, so we'll add another, we'll make one standard to rule them all, and then there's 15 competing standards. But it seems semantic versioning is the closest thing i found to a convention, or at least a little bit of consensus, in how to indicate with your version uh, whether someone should indicate with the version the risk of upgrading that package.
0: I agree. I know that NPM actually enforces semantic version. Mm-hmm. Um, Ruby Gems doesn't, but again, I agree. It's it's easily understood that if the major version changes, then you're probably going to have a compatibility issue if you're relying on the previous version.
1: Right, right. And then when I'm adding new features, you know, I'll, I'll increment the version. You know, if it's two point eight point one, I might do two point nine point whatever. And then if I'm adding in a bug fix or a very minor one, then I'll just use the the last uh, digit to just indicate there there is a change, but it's not it's not a high risk change. There there shouldn't be a lot of risk to uh, upgrading it on your uh, uh, staging or production hardware.
2: Also, oh, do you so you kind of go with that model of like how? Slack, or how some other apps are using the idea of every time they make a change, they name it and they announce it, and they let you know what happened. Regardless, of like not regardless, but uh, basically, how um, it doesn't matter how small or large that change is, but announcing and get basically creating a social aspect of your changes.
1: Exactly, I- I- exactly, and I mean that. That's. It makes it more helpful, I think, when something goes wrong uh, into zeroing in on exactly where something went wrong. Like I always, no matter how small the change is, I always, always uple- update the change log mm-hmm. uh, to make it easy. Not only if, or if someone sees the error, to make it probably easier for them to kind of trace it and see where it came in. And that's helpful for me as the developer, because that means I can solve the problem much faster. But also just to to have that, I mean, no software is going to have no errors all the time. It's kind of like that saying, you know, you can fool some of the people some of the time, all the people, now I'm getting confused. Uh, but anyway, you, you see my point. And it, having that social aspect of it, you know, it really connects the user of the software, I think, with the developer of the software. And we work together to, to make a, a better product or a better package or whatever have you.
2: Yeah, I agree. That's very funny. You say that I see people that you know, some of the one of the most fun things that I've done in my career is just go through and read like people's change logs. And you and some people they create whole stories of like the process mm-hmm. of going through change logs. I know one company it, they did an update of an app and they basically wrote it out as if it was going, you were going to Mordor or like Lord of the Rings or something. It was just hilarious. Oh, that's
1: like, adorable.
2: <laughs> so I that with our troops. And I'm like, it, like if you ever go to some like the more like, popular apps and uh, uh, app store and just read their change logs, you'll find some of the funniest stuff that you've ever liked. If, if there was a tech comedian out there, he all his material had been written for him.
1: <laughs> That's adorable. Uh, it's something else that having that, having that versioning and having that change log in there is when you're dealing with uh, an error in a dependency of a package, or sometimes a dependency of a dependency of a dependency of a package. I, uh, I had an intern start with me last year, and I was trying to fix. There's something along those lines, a dependency of a dependency of a dependency. And I said in my standup, well, I'm going on this epic yak shave. And then learned later that she didn't know what yak shave meant. Um, but <laughs> it, it is the classic example of yak shave where there's some dependency, you know, three or four layers down the line that that, that, that that's not right. Uh, something has gone wrong and you're seeing that cascade up the chain.
0: Yeah, those are always fun to track down too.
1: Right, it turtles... All the way down.
0: (laughs) Like, well, it's not my code. Uh, Well, it's not the code my code's using.
1: Exactly. Well, something I do like to see is when uh, in an open source project, when someone reports an error and it turns out it's due to a dependency of that project, uh, one of the things I like seeing open source maintainers and something I try to do is that if it turns out the error is not with my project, but it's with a ups- or downstream project or a dependency, I like to open the issue myself and then link it to the issue in my project uh, rather than closing the issue and telling the person, well, this the problem isn't with our code, so we're just going to close this. You know, If the problem's here, maybe you can... Uh, you know, open an issue in this other person's repository, as, as an open source maintainer, I'd like to take that responsibility myself in that uh, if there's an issue with a dependency of my software, either remove that dependency from my software or take the initiative to open that issue in that dependency's GitHub uh, repo and say, hey, there's a problem here. Uh, this is where it was reported to me. Uh, what can we do together to fix this?
0: I like that approach. The other thing is, is then you can also just let people know instead of, well, it's their fault, you can say...
1: Exactly. Right, a collaborative approach. It works so much better than an adversarial approach.
0: Usually is my fault, though. Right. (laughs) Anyway, um, the last thing that you have in the notes that, uh, that you put in our Google Doc to prep for this was about software licenses. Right. I generally just go with MIT license on most of my Ruby stuff. But there are other licenses. Why would you pick one over the other?
1: Uh, that's a good question. Uh, MIT, I often go with for my personal stuff uh, just because it's one of the simplest out there. Uh, for, I don't know, now I'm trying to remember. Uh, for stuff that I do as part of a company, I tend to go with Apache, uh, partly because that's recommended by our uh, legal counsel. And I think think, though I need to verify with that, with Apache, there's some more release of liability or something, um, but I will need to, to check with those to verify it.
0: Yeah, there are a whole bunch, and some projects have actually created their own, like Postgres is, right. is sort of the Postgres license.
1: Um, I,
0: think, I think they have their own license. There, there, there are a few of them out there that do that. But essentially, the license, so just to back up for people who don't understand why you put a license on software, uh, because software is a creative work. It is copyrightable, at least in the U.S. And so uh, as soon as you create it, you own it. And even if you put it out there uh, publicly so people can see the code, they can't actually use it without violating your copyright. And Mm -hmm. so the software license allows them to use it and sets the terms under which they can do that. And so you'll see some people talk about GPL license, and they'll talk about the trade-offs with that, and then they'll talk about some of these other ones like Apache or MIT or... Um, yeah, there there are a whole bunch of them out there. And so, that was
2: my question. I was like, what are all the licenses out there? Because outside of MIT, I was under the impression that most companies just you know went through their lawyer to license and make their stuff uh, proprietary.
0: Yeah, it depends. So, for example, there's a system out there by a company here in Utah called Canvas by Instructure, and their open source version is GPL licensed and so what that means is that if you modify gpl license wordpress incidentally is also gpl license so if you modify it or write code for it then your code also has to be gpl licensed in other words it has to be open source and publicly available um apache license is less restrictive as far as forcing you to share what your contributions um and it has a whole bunch of legal protections that go both ways uh, MIT license is basically do whatever you want with this, but we offer no warranty and make no guarantees about it. Um, and those are, those are kind of the most common ones that I see, um, but you'll you'll see other ones come up. There's also the Afero GPL, which is uh, generally used on more of the um, uh, web stuff or open uh, open systems kind of stuff, and uh, because it has just slightly different terms to it. Um, but there are a few reasons why you would use them. MIT, if you're just putting it out there and you want people to use it, just put an MIT. Exactly. If you're working for a company, then yeah, talk to legal counsel, see what they want you to do. I've seen companies use MIT or Apache. Um, and then the reason that Instructure uses the GPL or AGPL, I don't remember which one it is, for Canvas is because they actually sell a commercial version of Canvas. that has a few more features in it. And so... Um, it it makes it harder for people to profit by their work. But at the same time, you know, people can go set up their own canvas and not pay them anything. So it kind of cuts both ways for them. And there are other reasons why they went along with, uh, you know, open sourcing their commercial product that I probably don't understand all the reasons for. But yeah, um, so, so that's generally where you see these things. And then uh, different companies will also have policies regarding... Uh, what kinds of packages they can accept based on licenses. So some companies won't accept anything that's open source at all, and some companies will only accept them if they have an Apache license or you know a number of similar licenses. And then other companies are like, well, if it, you know if it works and it doesn't cause us a problem, then we trust our developers. So it just kind of goes all the way. There are also a lot of companies that won't use GPL licenses because they don't want to open source their contributions to the project that they're building. And so they would rather actually do the work of recreating whatever it is that has the GPL license. on it.
1: Yep. Uh, licensing is something that that's been around for a while. So there, there, there are, I mean, there's, you know, I'd say MIT Apache and GPL are probably the, the most common that I see. Uh, and those, uh, the, they're the most common for a reason. Uh, and it's because they, they limit that liability and they, You know, set at least a little bit of guidelines on how someone can use the work. And it makes sense if you're an open source developer, you might want your work to only be used in other open source software rather than wanting it to be used uh, or rather than being used in closed source.
0: Yeah. One other thing that's kind of related to this that I think I'll bring up just for a minute, and that is if you want to contribute to one of these projects, a lot of times you have some kind of intellectual property agreement with your employer. Mm -hmm. And so anything that you create along those lines, they technically own. And so what winds up happening is with a lot of these, especially with the Apache Foundation, um, I interviewed a whole bunch of people with the Apache Foundation about seven or eight years ago. And uh, what they do is they have to get individual contributor license agreements from the companies that their contributors work for um, that exempt any work done on those packages or on those projects for the Apache Foundation so that the Apache Foundation can then own the software instead of the individual or the company that they work for. So,
2: all right.
0: So yeah, lots of stuff there. We should get an, an attorney on to talk about all that stuff because it's really interesting.
1: Wow. Uh, I have someone to recommend uh, if you're if you're interested in in that.
0: All right, I will send you an email. Cool. Is there anything else we should talk about with packaging? I know we kind of. Uh, delved off into open source and stuff, but any other areas that we should hit before we go to PIX?
1: Well, I think we've, we've given a, a, pretty good, a pretty good overview. I mean, you can go way down the weeds on any packaging system, but you know, essentially, packaging software is a way to manage the dependencies, uh, both of your software and of software that you're using from other people to simplify uploading it or simplified, downloading it, uh, upgrading, etc. And there's many, many different facets to it.
0: Yeah. Oh, I do have one more question for you. And I'm curious mm-hmm. how you answer that. Um, so I know some of the people listening are going to go, well, I'm just a web developer and we have people that do this stuff for
1: us. Why should right. I care? Uh, that is a good question. And I'd say part of it is, why should I care? Part of it is empathy you know, there are things that you can do with your software that make it more difficult to package than other things. And I think having that basic knowledge of at least of what it takes to package software, even if it's not part of your day to day job, even if someone else does it for you, gives you a little more empathy for that person's job, and helps build a better product all around.
0: I agree. I also feel like people should um, occasionally step outside of the narrow confines of whatever role Mm -hmm. you're in. Um, You add more value to the company that you're working for, um, and you can do a whole lot more good for them just by doing this. I also agree with you on the point of empathy, but I, I I think they both play in. If you understand how this thing gets deployed, how it all works, how everything hangs together then you can make some very meaningful contributions to your company that you otherwise wouldn't be able
2: to do.
1: Exactly. And maybe even you'll come across something in your work that could be very useful to software developers around the world. Uh, knowing how to package it and how to release it is is a way to, to contribute to that, whether it's a, you know, javascripts or ruby whatever it is it's a way to contribute to that larger framework to kind of get out of your own day job your own personal work and contribute to the world as a whole
0: all right well if people want to read more about this or follow up with you and what you're working on these days now what do they do
1: uh, best thing is to go to my Twitter. Uh, it's uh, twitter.com slash Nell Shamrell. That's spelled N E L L, S H A as in Mary, R-E-L-L. Uh, send me a tweet or a DM or whatever you prefer. And I'm happy to answer any questions that I can. And if I don't know the answer, I can probably point you toward resources or point you towards someone who uh, knows the answer and if you have opinions on this I'm, I'm always interested in hearing those as well
0: hey there this is charles maxwood and i just wanted to talk to you really briefly about freelance remote conf i'm putting on a conference for people who want to go freelance or who are freelance and bringing in some of the experts from the freelancer show to talk to you about how to find clients how to collect money how to build your business how to specialize and much much more So if you're thinking about going freelance or you're already freelance and want to hear from the experts on how to go, become, or grow your freelancing business, then by all means, come check us out at freelanceremoteconf.com. All right, cool. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Jerome, do you have some picks for us?
2: Uh, Yes, sir. Uh, My top pick for today is actually a Git repo uh, called Google University. This guy, John Washam, he's a He's been. He was former army, and actually, funny story. He served in uh, South Korea some time ago. Uh, been a programmer for fifteen years, decided he was going to uh, go on the journey to shore up his his skills from web developer to full uh, software engineer. So he's been documenting documenting it in a uh, blog and you know, on his Git repo called calling it Google University. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely love it. We've actually been using it as part of our curriculum for helping our veterans get better for interview prep uh, over the past. Uh, I think we were it was shared with us about four or five months ago. Well, now it's become like huge as of last week. It's very funny. It was our best kept secret, and now everyone's talking about it. And uh, it's really, really, uh, it's really, really cool. So that's my. Top pick today. Uh, Rogue, uh, see, messed me up. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, we, we can cut that out. Yeah, Google I was like, what? Well, I, I saw Rogue One, and I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, but that's my top pick. Uh, repo called uh, Google University by John Washam. He's in. He's actually in Seattle. so uh, Awesome. If you, yeah. If you want to reach out to him, he's uh, definitely there. I just connected with him on LinkedIn. He's pretty sure guy.
1: Cool. I will definitely check him out.
0: Alright, I'm going to jump in with a couple of picks. On Saturday, I went and saw Rogue One. Uh, this is a new Star Wars movie. Um, it's it's kind of funny because I keep going to these and I'm hoping to feel the same way I feel when I watch one of the original three, not the prequels, the original three Star Wars. And uh, I just don't. And I think part of it is just that I have this nostalgia about it that I don't think will ever be there for these others. So, uh, you know, it was a good movie. I really liked it. But yeah. It's not Luke Skywalker, sorry. Um, one thing that I thought was funny, um, somebody sent me, his name's Jim Tobin, he's a listener of Adventures in Angular, um, and we we harassed one of the co-hosts on that show mercilessly about Star Wars because um, he hates it and he reacts to it, but <laughs> anyway, um, so there was a company out there called Ovo Energy that put together a blog post that talks about the uh, cost of powering the Death Star, and I think it was like 6.8 octillion pounds because they're a british company so it's british pounds um which i have no idea how much that is in dollars but that's still a lot of dollars so anyway um i was just i was like oh wow cool and so i thought i'd pick that as well because it was kind of mind-boggling just to see you know how much it would cost to run the death star so yeah those are my picks now what are your picks
1: Alright, for mine, I am also picking Rogue One, though uh, the reason I'm picking it, I think one of the reasons I liked it so much, is it highlights that wars are won and movements are won, not as much by the people who become legends, like Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, etc., but normal people whose names may not be remembered, but the ones who... You know, every day with every action, try to do the next right thing. And I found that uh, to be uh, very moving. Uh, next pick is Trader Joe's Irish Breakfast Tea. I'm a bad Seattleite in that I generally prefer tea to coffee. And the nice thing about this tea is it's uh, got a good amount of caffeine in it. It's a nice pick-me-up, but without the crash I get from coffee or energy drinks. And then my final pick, it's kind of an unusual one, but it's the Scrub Daddy Sponge. And if you watch uh, Shark Tank, you might have seen Scrub Daddy on it. And what's cool about it is it's a sponge that when you run it under warm water, it's soft. But when you run it under cold water, it's really firm and great for scrubbing. And, you know, I hate doing the dishes. I always have, but it's, it's a necessity of life. And I think it's a great example of a product that took something that had been around however long sponges have been around uh, and improved it and made it a little intellectually interesting at the same time with the way it changes texture. So those are my picks.
0: I thought you just liked having a smiley face in the kitchen.
1: I do love uh, that it has a smiley face. Uh, admittedly, that, that is part of part of the uh, appeal too. It it makes me feel better, and the smile is great for scrubbing spoons. <laughs> you oh, just stick it in the go. smile. Yep, exactly, and it, it works great. And the eyes are good for chopsticks. So, uh, <laughs> utility and
0: delight. I love it.
1: Exactly. It's 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 just it's the perfect example.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, thanks for coming, Nell.
1: Thank you for having me. It's it was a it's a joy to be back here, and uh, yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Awesome. Well, we'll catch everyone next week. All right. Bye,
1: everyone.